we're live now. All right, Mike. Where are we right now? We are at the Taste Tech event, hosted <laughs> by Gino Malverda. <laughs> Why are we here, Nick? We are here to taste delicious genetically modified organisms and see how that fits in with the future of food and see what kind of delicious results we can get from playing with GMOs. Are GMOs safe? I can only assume so. I mean, every bit of reading I've done on this topic says that it is safe to ingest. And I mean, given what we're about to do, I really hope that's the case. Hopefully there will be some experts here that we can talk to and maybe we can get a bit more information about some of the GMOs that we'll be trying today. Man, that's the dream scenario. I can, only, I can only wish for such a fortuitous outcome. I mean, off to, off to the side here, I see, I see a couple poster boards that appear to be showing various representatives from different organizations that, oh my God, that, you're that right. may know a bit more about this than we do. Do you think we should try and talk with those people? I think we should. Tonight, I'm representing as a board member of Genome Alberta that is one of the hosts of this particular event. So we're very pleased to have you all here. Why do we have you here? This is really a celebration of science and of food. And I think what we've seen over the last century, but let's even think about the last decade, to have food that is safe, that's affordable, that's available, that's delicious, all the things that, as you will find out, there are several people in this room have been very involved in. Okay, so first we're gonna start off with cheers to healthy Canadian agricultural Cheers. 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 So I am Bryce Eager and I am the commercial unit lead for Corteva. We are focused only on agriculture. So we get up each and every day, we put our boots on, we put our, well, we put our jeans on first, we put our boots on next, we'll be a little backwards if we did it the other way, and we think about the farmer and we think about all of you as consumers. So our purpose as a new organization is to enrich the lives of those who produce and those who consume, ensuring progress for generations to come. That's what Corteva AgriScience is about. Uh, our next person that we're going to hear from is Catherine Miles. Catherine is actually the physical host uh, because she's coming from SAIT, from the School of Hospitality and Tourism. Please help me to uh, welcome Catherine to tell you how the evening's going to unfold. <laughs> multi-generational family farm operation just east of Calgary here that had the idea of taking our product from grain to glass and it's been a real work of, uh, of interest and passion for us this on our farm operation we have our fifth generation of farmer now in our operation so I want to briefly cut in and say I'm drinking one right now in the passion shows. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Because uh, well, we grow the best barley in the, well, North America. We really do. We have people coming from California for our barley. Really? Because the, the climate in Alberta, the climate particularly where we live, kind of southern Alberta, we're east of Calgary here. Yeah. The climate and now, of course, our, our farming practices, we really do grow some of the best barley in the world. We really do. And we're getting renowned for that. And I heard 
this is in another part of Canada, but about 10 years ago that Canada produced a lot of barley, but it was the malting that was holding back local production. But you guys, when did you set up your malter, your malting operation? That's a great question. And the reason for that is it, it, it's the origin of origin is the answer <laughs> to your question. About six and a half years ago, prior to that time, we by law had to sell our barley to an entity called the Canadian Wheat Board. And we had no choice, no idea, no feedback to where it was going to go. We even though it was barley? Even though it was barley. It was under the jurisdiction as malting barley under the Canadian Wheat Board, as was other grains. Six and a half years ago, thankfully, uh, legislation was brought forward by the Conservative government that allowed us to have market freedom. What a concept in this day and age. And literally within a month of that being announced, we had signed a contract with the brewing company out of Petaluma, California that Lynn referred to called Lagunitas. You oh, might, yes. You might know. I we, do. This year we are... They're, they're here. You don't say. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Mike, we're with celebrities. <laughs> literally, they came to our farm. It was the first time they'd been to a farm in Canada, let alone Western Canada. Tony McGee, his wife Carissa, and a number of their CFOs and the head brewer, Jeremy uh, Marshall, who you might know that name, but he's their head brewer, still is today. And we showed them what we were doing with really good management practices here on barley production, specifically in Western Canada, for malt. And literally at the end of that event, that, that tour, he looked over to his CFO who was sitting down beside my, our brother, my brother who is our CFO of our, our financial guy and said, Leon, make a deal with these folks. He wanted the connection. He wanted the connection and he said to us, I want the people that come to my brew pub in California, just north of San Francisco, to be able to link right to your field, right to your farm. And we provided that access for him. And that was the start of this passion where we knew if we could show a traceability and now we brought it more local, a grape from this field, like these bags will be identified to a field that somebody from say uh, tool shed or somebody that's using our malt besides ourselves, they can bring people out and say this malt, this beer started in this field. And they can see the crop grow. Like it can come right on the combine. You can see the crop crop coming out of the ground. You can follow it, and that's what really what the consumers like. That traceability, that you know, that connection, and that feeling of comfort that their food was grown in a very sustainable, excellent manner. And that's that's what we do. Our family homesteaded here in 1910, so we're a hundred and eight years this is the first time we've had an opportunity to link directly to the consumer in our entire time of our and they are providing you guys as craft brew connoisseurs and consumers are providing an opportunity for the rest of our family that may otherwise have to go into the oil patch or sate or culinary arts or but now there's an op a new opportunity in agriculture for the people of this part of the world the young people, and that's exciting for us, at our as as being the more mature partners of our operation. <laughs> what, what do you think's been the biggest effect or the biggest change that has allowed for that kind of opportunity for the younger generation to be involved in that kind of operation? Well, technology for sure, right? You know, um, take for example our oldest son. He's a licensed heavy duty mechanic, and he did. You know, he worked in the old patch, he did Dubai, he did that for a long time, right? So he's seen that industry. So we've always believed in giving the young kids an opportunity. So when you come back to agriculture, you really have an opportunity to, to be hands-on, you know, to put your brand on it, to be able to craft something that's an excellent product, and we're excited to deliver it. So, you know, that like it is a grain to glass, that type of thing. So crafting a product out, you know, we call it the ass in the seats. You're out in the tractor from morn till night, 
and then to be able to drink a product. There's just such satisfaction in that. You know, so it's kind of that we can produce a product, you guys can enjoy it, that makes us happy. So, you know, the young kids are really connecting to that, right? They're connecting to the social media, to be able to show that picture. This is, this is my farm. This is our beer we're sharing, and the young kids love it, and as parents and grandparents now, we love it. I was going to bring up the social media aspect because, I mean, being the millennials that we are, you know, yes. we're, we're quite familiar with all the different things kind of going on, especially stuff like Twitter where, you know, you have all your hashtags and you've got people like, you know, like you said, tweeting, tweeting pictures of the beer that they're drinking. Like, you don't see people tweeting pictures of Keith, you see people, you know, Toolshed or... Um, you know, all, all the local breweries in Alberta specifically, especially, um, there's definitely, like you said, a sense of pride for sure to be able to say, this is the beer I'm drinking. And, you know, I can speak for myself that, you know, when I'm at a bar, like I look for the local local beers and, you know, I go to the, the liquor store and look look for the local beers and, and make a point to do that because not, not out of a disrespect to, you know, the bigger brands, but just you want to be able to support the local local Alberta breweries and, yeah. and just try the different varieties that are available to you, right? Yeah. Uh, because it's local, we have no preservatives, it's fresh, it's, it's, it's got the taste that reflects the passion that we put into it. It's award-winning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll snap a picture. Also in this industry, like all the crafters, they really support the, each other. And Malia has the foodie trucks coming out on the weekends, you know, and we have craft night. We have, you know, the local people have really supported us. And that's huge because it, it really is about, you know, what's going on in your neck of the woods. And people are enjoying it and supporting it. And the industries are supporting each other. Like, it really is a, a really a, a good field story. Science and technology show. We usually try to get an angle on what's kind of coming up for for different industries, different different areas of technology. In in your opinion, or based on your business, like what what's kind of the current challenge when it comes to brewing, or, or what what are people kind of moving towards versus what's happening happening today, if anything. But on the farming side, right? This these venues are excellent for us, right? Because we're trying to. Um, Educate the consumer, maybe not educate, but it's this sharing, right? Because there's still... There's a level of awareness. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, they when they made the introductions, right, they talked, kind of directed some points to that. Whereas the consumer needs to understand uh, the technology that we use and the care that we put into producing our foods, right? So we're still at that education stage, right? Um, there's a lot of misconceptions out there, you know, regarding there's people here with crop products or protection. crop protection, right? So it's about them feeling comfortable that we're doing the best we can do and us telling them the story that we're really, you know, we consume what we eat, so we take care in what we produce for everyone. So yeah. I think our challenge really still is at that education level. We, we, and just on the technology side for agriculture, we, we engage, because the question was being asked of us, you know, it's a concern around, you know, the climate and CO2 emissions and, and uh, you know, carbon, you know, what's the carbon yeah. thing? And so we engage literally we're so fortunate that we know him. His name is Dr. Wayne Linwall. He is the leading research scientist, at least in Canada, likely in this part of the world, in terms of the ability of soil to sequester carbon dioxide and carbon. So as an example, when, and, and so we engaged Dr. Linwall to do a carbon equation on our farm. Like what is our result? What 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 is our effect? What's our what's our effect to the carbon dioxide to the carbon dioxide question? So we know now with a high high level of certainty when we had the folks come out the two bus loads of people that came out for two days in a row and we literally shut our farm down to talk to these folks when the question open farm days when it came question came up about what's carbon what's your where are you at in this CO two thing? We could say to them with all certainty that on our farm this year, we will take 
3,500 metric tons of carbon dioxide out of the air on our farm operation. And then, you know, you're talking to people and say, oh, that's a, kind of a big number because a ton of carbon dioxide, that's, a, that's got a lot, right? And that's good. But then you say, but another good part of that story is through that process, which we all took in school of photosynthesis, oxygen, almost in its purest, most pure form, is released. So for every ton of CO2 that we sequester, we bring in, we release one ton of pure oxygen. Good. What's the rest? What happens to the what happens to the two molecules of carbon? Or no, so the one, sorry, the one molecule of CO2. The one molecule of carbon goes down into the root system or goes down into the soil through the root system and becomes our organic organic matter. And through the use of good technology and best farming practices, it stays there. Do, do you practice like low or no till? Correct. For years. We've been recognized, our family, as in the Canadian Conservation Hall of Fame for our work in soil conservation. So we've been at this game since the 70s. It's now, and Lynn, Dr. Wayne Leno was saying, why are you not telling people the story? So we, we and so he says, and he says, so 3,500 metric ton, release some good oxygen, lock that carbon in the soil, stays there permanently with good management practices. Geological time scales. And then he I, says, I went down a rabbit hole a few years ago on like carbon sequestration by turf grasses. And yeah, if you have a good, and barley is a grass variant, or it's exactly. based on grasses. You got it. With 100%, a deep system, you absolutely, you can sequester it for probably longer than humans will be around. And he, that's exactly the point, Nick. And he said, and then you tell the people that you're talking to, you will do that again next year and next year and next year unless there is an unbalance in what is good management system and what would be an example of that a government regulated program that's driven by misinformation that would say no we can no longer have crop protection products or we can no longer have fertilizer now we're going to have to use tillage again and tillage releases carbon it does other things but it releases carbon so that's a really, and people are really happy to hear that story, that we can be a very positive. There's many other things about a good, highly, we can kind of compare it to training an Olympic athlete. We literally have turned the soils in this part of the world into Olympic caliber athletes in terms of their ability to be able to buffer bad situations, poor conditions, take off-site pollutants, from industrial pollution in Calgary that comes west on the trade winds, they've actually monitored how our soils, because microbes in the soil don't care. It's a food product to them, and they break it down into the basic nutrients on your chemical scale, carbon, nitrogen. So we've got a lot of great things to tell about what we've done with this, and that's when the Open Farm Days folks come and we're standing there. Yeah, we, have, we were serving some beer as well, but we, we grabbed a handful of soil and said, you have to understand that this is a cycle of a, of a system that is truly a miraculous in terms of what it can do to produce food, protect the environment. We just gotta do our job. And if we can do best management practice, we're not stifled by regulatory or things that are unreasonable. We are gonna kick butt in terms of what we can do with with our soils in Western Canada. Uh, Lagunitas now is going to be starting a program with us as one of their key growers in Alberta to do an environmental audit. Because we've always had the environmental farm program, but it was pretty broad and it wasn't specific enough. This environmental audit that we're now, I think, going to help to certainly initiate or launch, but maybe even develop, maybe we've got some opportunity to put some input into it, say, you know, make sure the carbon thing is in on this questionnaire I think as that comes of age which should happen now in the next few years that is going to be this kind of differentiating opportunity that people like Dr. Wayne Lenwell said why in heaven's name are you guys not why are you folks not telling that story why don't you scream it from the roots scream the that's exactly you know what it's exactly yeah, what he said yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that we're, we're so infant we're so new to this game because literally six years ago we couldn't even talk about our product. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I, I actually witnessed people like eight, nine years ago getting ceremoniously put in jail for marketing their own grain. Isn't that crazy? That is, yeah. It's hard to believe that in this century, let alone this decade, that that was happening. It's so crazy, but thank God we are where we are now. So Mike and Nick, this is Kyle Kyle Gerhardt. I'd like to introduce him. Hey, Kyle is our general manager of Origin Malting and Brewing, and I know you had some questions about science and technology in the brewing side. So, um, so kind of the way that this whole thing started, uh, my wife and I. So my wife is Spencer and Lynn's youngest daughter. Um, we used to work for a grain company. Um, in 2016, we met a guy down in the U.S. that uh, owned a brewery. Was really starting to lose market share in his brewery just for the fact that there's so many breweries in the U.S. and he was not dealing specifically local. So he thought, you know what? I can buy some malting equipment. I'm going to deal with local farmers, and I'm just going to have local malt in my beer. I'll be able to get market share, and then you know, just go from there. Um, he also, as he started looking around, he realized that there's not a whole lot of malting equipment on the size that he wanted to go available. So he teamed up with his friend and they designed the multi equipment that he came up and showed us. So from there, we just kind of left things be. And then, um, uh, great After you like just jumped in on completely custom tech, you were like, all right, this will do for now. We'll see we, where this honest, takes us. Honestly, at that point in time, we hadn't done it. Um, we left it from August of 2016 till November of 2016, Grey Cup weekend, November 2016. We flew down, looked at the equipment, and I was like, yeah, we're gonna do this. And so that's when I brought Hilton's in and one other partner, the guy that actually used to work for it, Chris Shibla. Uh, he owns WA Grain and Pulse Solutions in Innisfail. Brought those guys in and said, you know what, if we're gonna do this, let's do it. Alberta has the best barley in the world. It's proven. There is breweries coming from all over the world to get Alberta barley. You guys are already dealing with Lagunitas. You guys already have a brand reputation for that. Why are we not doing that ourselves? So we came up with the idea, you know, we're going to start a malting company. From there, it was, you know what, the best way to test malt is to brew with it. So I went and got a good buddy of mine that was in the midst of starting a brewery in Strathmore. So you know what, forget about all that. Come be a part of this and let's just brew some beer. And yeah, so we opened August 4th of uh, 2017 and it's been, it's been crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we're super new. Almost a year. Almost a year. We're <laughs> tripling in size our first year. Um, literally by our first birthday, we'll have our new system installed. And yeah, from there, we're going to be all across Alberta. Yeah. Just growing the brand. So where do you see the, the tech side of things going in the next... I mean, you're new still, but as you expand, as you grow, like where do you see the tech side of things going? Any like exciting developments on that side? Not really exciting. Like... Right now, it's really bridging the gap between the very small brewers to the very big brewers. There's, unfortunately, there has been some brewers in Alberta that have had some issues with storage. That's something that's all new to us. You go into distribution and some brewers have, or connect as warm storage for some guys. And it's really getting that stable product so that way everyone can drink the best beer in the world. And I'm, firmly believe that some of Alberta's breweries are awesome, if not all of Alberta's breweries are literally knocking it out of the park. Like Alberta's got such a great beer scene. So it's really just trying to catch up to that growth and get the get the technical practices to where they should be. And I really could not point out a single brewery in Alberta that is not striving for that. Like Alberta's got such a great brewing scene and it's it's just catching up to that. My my main familiarity with kind of I guess retail in general is distribution you know you, you mentioned distribution kind of being the key barrier here I know like a lot of breweries will kind of go the brew pub model where they're they're hosting like a restaurant pub type thing in their own brewery or they have kind of their own individual locations where they're basically controlling their own distribution is that something that you guys have or would be considering in order to overcome that kind of barrier to distribution so we are I don't know we're kind of a one-off um, my my family has such a strong tie to our community that we started with just a tap room and we were like, well, we'll see where it goes. And then, you know, we have a five barrel right now. It's like, well, we're probably gonna have to do distribution because we're never gonna move enough beer. We're literally sold out all the time without a restaurant. It's just a straight tap room. We have 150 person occupancy in our tap room and it's usually packed almost every day. 
So that's something that we're now going that we're getting into the 15 barrel. We're really having to get into that group or that the distribution model. But I really do see brew pubs being the next the next main thing, just because there is so many breweries in Alberta that it, it is hard to get taps and shelf space and liquor stores and stuff. So if yes. you can actually yes, it is. own that market where you control your destiny, like you said, that is a very smart model. And you're starting to see guys like Prairie Dog that are just about to open up here in a week or so. That's exactly what they're doing. They're, they have a good restaurant and they're going to sell all their beer for the most part right in their tap room. So that's, it's a good model. Can you comment a bit on the social media aspect? Like we were talking to uh, to Spencer about that a little bit to see kind of what, what kind of effect that's had compared to past days where you would never hear about, you know, a small, you know, grower or brewer like Origin or any of the other local breweries here in Alberta. Um, has Have you found that to be a really beneficial part of your business model and just your growth? Absolutely. So on the Origin side of things, our uh, marketing budget is like next to none. We use pure social media, and literally before we bought a brewery, before we did anything, we had like a thousand likes on social media. People, like, we hadn't done anything. So social media is such a great tool. It's easy to spread the information to the masses, because now, you know, we were nervous when we started, like, how about, are we really missing a demographic? Like, people that are 50 and plus, are they really on it? Some of the best customers we have are 50 plus. Like, we'll post a new beer release, our tap room will be full with like senior citizens. And that's, everyone's on social media nowadays. On the farm side of things, that's where I really, really see social media being such a great tool. Just for the fact that under the Canadian Wheat Board, farms were, nobody knew about them. It was, you grew your grain, you sold it, you didn't know your end consumer, you didn't know anything. Nobody was loud and proud. And now in this day and age, we all have the tools, we're not tied down by anybody. Be loud and proud, and that's where social media is really starting to propel on the, the agriculture side of things. Like Everybody in the brewing community is pretty loud and proud on their social media, but it's really nice to see farmers are starting to catch up. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen like the, the Portlandia bit, where they do, like, they're do like they getting the chicken, they're asking all these questions, but I, I think there's an element of truth to that, is that people do want to know that. Like it's, it's easy to make fun of it and talk about you know how crazy people get, but I think at the end of the day, people do want something to care about and be conscious about the decisions they're making and and being able to you know connect your beer to a certain barley to a certain farm in alberta i think that goes a really long way for for, for that brand identity and for being able to feel good about the kind of choices that you're making as a consumer for sure absolutely that is that's such an important tool especially in alberta now like we're going back to people being loud and proud about what is happening right now the craze is local people want to be able to literally put a face to what they're drinking, what they're eating. They want to be able to support local instead of dealing with those big chains of things. So local and actually be able to put that face to the brand, it's huge. That is literally the driving focus behind our company. Yeah. How many different varieties of beer are you brewing right now? Uh, so right now we always have 12 beers on tap. Uh, I should say we're trying to have 12 beers on tap. Right now, we're currently pretty well sold out. We're down to about seven beers. So wait, uh, 12 beers and only seven medals. Nine. <laughs> what happened to the other nine, five? Nine medals. Uh, oh, yeah. nine medals. Oh. <laughs> what happened to the other three? <laughs> Unfortunately, they weren't good enough. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. God. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so since we, we started brewing July 13th, and currently we've actually brewed 45 different styles of beers. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... We're literally just trying to test the market, see what people like to drink. We're lucky on the size that we're currently at. It's a five barrel. I mean, it yields like 13 kegs. What's the worst that's going to happen, right? <laughs> yeah. So we, yeah. we just brew what we want to brew, and right. we brew that what we know people are going to want to drink. We try to be on point with what we do. So. That's great. Yeah. Do you, I guess as an operation, do you hire specific people to do kind of the more... Um, I don't know, I guess like scientific, like I, I don't know all the different roles within a brewery, but like as far as like the experimenting, you know, talk about 45 different brews, like are there people doing all that testing and the tweaking with flavors, different balances of ratios, all that kind of stuff, are there's dedicated people to that or are you kind of running the whole operation on that end? Yeah, so no, there's dedicated people, like we have a head maltster, we have a head brewer, we have a system brewer. We, when I started this company, the one thing for me that I, used, I went to business school down in the US and the one thing my one professor told me is when you have a boardroom meeting, if you build a company the proper way, you should by far be the least educated person in that room 
hire people that are smarter than you. You should not have to be able to talk besides on a pure operations basis. We have a brewer that literally comes up with the craziest recipes. He's on point with what he, what he does. Our assistant brewer, he's an old scholar student. All he likes to actually do besides occasionally brew is sit in front of a microscope and worry about the quality control and worry about the stability of each product. And we have a monster that came from school too. It's hire people that are smarter than you if you want to be successful. That, that sounds like your dream job, saying if I'm in Mexico <laughs> doing quality control for beer. No, no, but there are people in the micro section at work that would love that. <laughs> well, well awesome. please, I'll appreciate yeah, well, thank that. Thank you so much, guys. Really Take appreciate care. you talking yeah, to us. Great awesome. beer. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. So, yeah, why don't you tell us a bit about, uh, about Eau Claire Distillery? Yeah. yeah, sure. Well, Eau Claire Distillery is the uh, first craft distillery in the province of Alberta. We are primarily a whiskey distillery, so we make single malt whiskey. And, uh, and we're proud of the fact that we're the first single malt whiskey distillery ever in Alberta, despite the fact that we actually ship Alberta barley to Scotland so they can make scotch. We've never actually made it here. Really? So kind of a fun, new value-added thing for uh, Alberta agri-food. Okay. So do you run a grain-to-glass model as well? So we do. You you yeah, our, we have, um, we're fully farmed to glass, okay. is, uh, is, is our term for it. Yeah, okay, um, sure. So we actually do some of our own farming. Now our farming technique is probably not quite what you're talking about in terms of advanced technology because we do 45 acres using horses. Um, oh, wow. So we still, we have old equipment. Horses are also a technology. <laughs> they are. And it's a good technology, uh, time honored. But um, carbon neutral, carbon neutral, well, and I mean, uh, methane. But <laughs> yeah. but we are preserving a, a way of life, and we're the only uh, you know horse farm whiskey in the world. Oh wow! Um, now we don't do all of our farming that way. Like I, obviously we have um, regular sources of modern farming for grain because we can't produce all of that. Right. But um, but it gives us a sense of the terroir of the soil. Um, you know. Only recently have we ever really known what Alberta barley tastes like uh, from region to region, because in the past we had the Alberta wheat or the uh, Canadian wheat pool, and they just threw everything in one big basket, and you never knew where it came from. But would they would they mix the different batches of grain yeah. as well? Yeah. Oh, wow. So you really and they didn't identify it. You weren't allowed to sort of identify it as being from a particular okay. farm. So there's like kind of like a book price that you sold to, or did they assess how much your grain was they worth? They assessed how much okay. the grain grain was worth, and then they sold it on your behalf in international markets. So I couldn't go to a farm and say I'd like to buy your barley. Um, so when that was removed, it opened up a whole bunch of possibilities from a taste point of view to say that. You know, um, barley that's grown on uh, grade one soil in Old Alberta will taste completely different than the dry climate of Vulcan, Alberta. And what does that do to taste? So we're probably um, at the forefront now of, of looking at how terroir affects the taste of the barley. How do you exploit that for like different, I mean different spirits. Well, if you think about it, um, the winemakers or the vintners have been talking about that for years, right? As you know, coffee growers. And, and coffee growers as well. So the, you know, the north side of the hill has a different microclimate than the south side of the hill. And, and, uh, and, and we truly know that, that that is true in the flavor of the grapes. So what we're exploring now is, um, is how that can affect it and, and what that means for an Alberta Appalachian of whiskey, you know, and, um, which is bound to taste different than Scotland, um, but uh, not, not better or worse, but just a, a different reflection of what the, the farming produce is in the province. It, it would seem that the elimination of the wheat borer's control, or just the dissolution of the wheat borer, I'm not sure what the case is, yeah. but it would encourage a lot more innovation on the part of the growers to stand out and yeah. and be able to sell themselves as well, different as something worth looking at versus a I different think so. grower. Even uh, bigger producers, and this goes for not just just grain, but but I think for beef as well. It's always been commoditized. So, but the consumer actually wants some traceability. They want to know that it came from this farm. It's not that they care how it's produced. They just want that that. Um, touching point with the producer. So, um, you know, we're, 
what, what this enables is us to be more connected with that, that consumer as well, which we've never been able to do before. First, how old are you? Four years old. So you, is that you've just made the threshold to sell whiskey under Canadian law? Yeah, so three years old is the the threshold under Congratulations. international <laughs> law, actually. Oh, yeah. it's international yeah. law. Okay. It is, uh, it's a whiskey thing, which is good because it, you know, it, it enforces a little bit of what quality uh, whiskey should should be. Um, and we just did our first release of whiskey in December of uh, 2017. Um, we were sold out um, within three days, and uh, and well but done. we continue to put whiskey away so we'll have another batch a bigger quantity this year and so on and so and we'll hold that some for five for ten for twelve years well, what kind of challenges are there in having to plan you know three five seven years ahead with something like a spirit like whiskey versus a beer where you can basically brew and have it produced and i don't know how long does brew beer take to brew well, we months, depending. Yeah, exactly. So basically on a month-to-month -month basis, you can plan for your volume versus a distillery, yeah. which you'd have to anticipate being oh, able yeah. to sell that much in three years' time. It's huge challenges, right? Because um, you have so many different flavor factors that you're uh, putting into the, the product, whether it be the type of barrels, um, how you're storing it, what you, know, what, uh, you use for yeast, all of those flavor things. But you don't know for sure that the decisions that you made three years ago or five years ago are going to be good decisions going forward. Um, you know, they're pretty educated bets, but, but it is uh, it's the proverbial crapshoot. Oh, yeah. Like there are wine vintages like that where it's just all of a sudden there was lightning in a bottle because the moon was in the right phase and the sun shone brightly on just the right day. and Which is... A little bit of marketing too, <laughs> but I think true enough. Yes, um, but I think there is some truth to it as well. But uh, but I think um, you know what what you you do today. You know you do with an education. We have master distillers uh, that are professionals that have studied it. So we're not completely winging it. We know what we're doing, um, but we still don't know the nuances that will come out um, and. Uh, the five-year-old will taste different from the two-year-old or from the three-year-old. Is it a pretty solved problem, the distilling uh, process, or are there advances being made and new kind of things being tested to kind of there find are, that perfect recipe? But it, it is, um, it's very much tied to tradition. So the fun of being craft is that we believe in tradition and doing things the right way and we have a tagline is that to make a masterpiece, no compromise can be tolerated. But the reality too is that part of being craft is pushing boundaries and saying, well, why, why does it have to be this? I mean, why do they have round barrels? Now we have forklifts, right? Like, uh, you know, we don't need to push them around. Was that for flavor or was it for convenience? Um, but will that affect taste, the panic that, you know, ensues if, my God, have you changed something that's been done for 500 years? We're waiting here with bated breath. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, but people are starting to think that way. They're, um, in wine, they use micro-oxygenation, where they do tiny bubbles um, that um, accelerates the, the process of, of, uh, of maturation. Um, there are people that are playing with that. We're not, but there are people that are playing with ideas like that just to, you know, to play with taste. So finally, I think it's one of the last uh, industries in food that is starting to think about what can we do, uh, but, um, but it's an exciting time to be in. With distilling itself, I know there's, there's variables in terms of numbers of distillations, numbers of filtrations. You can do, like you can artificially lower the pressure and distill that way like do you experiment much on that side of things or is is it more like sticking to the tried and true when you're dealing with something like a whiskey uh no i think that um a part of it is getting to know your own still so okay. uh, every still has different characteristics and different reactions um and a lot of distilling is about the cut points so when uh, the first distill distillate comes off um, you know, this is a giant chemistry set, really, right? So it's coming off, and all of the, the 
really the poisons that, you know, when you heard that the moonshiners went blind, it's because the first part of the distillation was methanols and isopropyls and so on. So um, they're also, if they creep into the distillation, uh, they're harsh. They're the bad whiskey that burns when it goes down and gives you indigestion. But it's uh, economic to use those. The middle of the cut is the hearts and it's the best, um, but you know, it's also to the nar how narrow you make those cuts is how, you know, uh, how much money you make really. Yeah. And then the tails at the end, um, some people redistill them and some people use them differently. There's even some people that will put them in a barrel, age them, and then bring them back as flavoring. So, uh, so there's a lot of technology within the actual distillation process. Um, and a lot of experimentation that goes on there for flavor. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it, it is, um, it's, the, it's the ultimate blend of art and technology. Because you yes. really are, you're a chemist and you're an artist. With, I guess on that note, with the advent and rise of home brewing, uh, I believe I saw a headline the other day that home distilling is yeah. now legal uh, or no. not yet? I think it's on the and table, though, never right? Never will be. No, no, I don't think so. I, I think um, so. If you if you brew a batch of beer or some wine at home and you uh, you know you you make a mistake, you might get a stomach ache. Um, if you don't know what you're doing from a distillation point of view, you can be very ill, if not turn yourself blind. I mean, oh, wow. it, you know, so so I don't think that the regulations will ever loosen enough uh, up that you can have home distillation or distillation like you do home brewing okay I, I'd certainly be surprised I don't know any jurisdiction that has gone down that route okay I maybe I was mistaken in the headline I read but I think it, it was at least tabled or suggested within whatever well, maybe, formal setting to maybe it's somebody that's hopeful <laughs> um, but I'll give you an example of why not so um, there's a lot of experimentation that goes um, for example the gins as to trying different botanicals but some botanicals, when they're actually distilled, distill out the poisons. Fennel is an example. If you, you know, it sounds pretty good to have fennel in a distillation, right? But in fact, fennel turns into a very serious poison when it's distilled. Hmm. So that kind of knowledge isn't something that you should be experimenting with at sure. home. No, and that, that's that's a valid valid point for sure. And and I think it is definitely a, a risk reward type thing. And I mean, like I'm Nick is the beer brewer between the two of us and I mean he has a lot more familiarity with it than I do and I imagine you wouldn't be doing it if there's a risk of dying or at least being seriously ill well that's actually why like that's actually why people have asked me about distilling at home and I've stayed away from it to this point because I went oh no I can't guarantee that I'm not going to take the methanol out of it in addition to being into beer for a while in university I got into very amateur vodka tasting and I have one of your vodkas in front of me. Yeah. Neat. It's a nice sweet aroma and it's a very it's a very gentle character. It is the straight vodka over there with the batch number yeah. written on in marker which is a very nice touch. So the history of vodka is that um, it, it originally came mostly from Eastern Europe, right? And, uh, and the myth was that it was all potatoes, but in fact, it was whatever grain crop or starch crop Whatever was starch available. you could get. There was a guy that we've all heard about named Spurnoff, and uh, he immigrated to America and wanted to make his fortune by selling uh, uh, a product across the United States. But in order to do it, he needed uniformity. It had, it had to all taste the same, and that doesn't necessarily happen when you when you're, you're doing it. Under it's an anathema to creativity. So he invented a system where you take activated carbon and you filter it. You take it to a high level of 95, which is azeotropic, and then you uh, and you filter it, and so you take out all the odor and all the taste. So by law, in many jurisdictions in North America, vodka must be tasteless and odorless. And it must be, in all jurisdictions, filtered by activated carbon. That is perhaps the most antiquated, ridiculous 
thing ever. But um, but nobody told us exactly how much activated <laughs> carbon you use. Hey. So we allow a little bit of that flavor to come through, and that's where you you're tasting a bit of the grain and the barley, and you know you taste bananas and nougat and. And yet not it's to that clear, level. It's still very clearly a vodka, but it's a vodka that is smooth enough that it works perfectly in a martini and so on. So, if if by law or on principle, vodka is mostly tasteless, colorless, yeah. odorless, or not odorless, but what is supposed to differentiate different vodkas? Well, I can tell you this one has like there's no burn going down. It tastes very hearty. I think. That, that would be the primary difference. So, um, and they talk about six times distilled, or you know, you, you see that in some of the advertising, and that would relate to the smoothness of the product. Um, and really, what it is, like when we hear that six times distilled, we think, well, you must have a terrible distill. Because <laughs> um, ours, in, in, in the style of distill that we have, would be equivalent to 23 times. Oh, wow. So it, it's a very high efficiency still that, that allows us to create that smooth product without running it. You run it once, but through 23 plates. Now, as someone with a chemistry background, um, you said you went to the azeotrope point of 95. You uh, didn't add benzene to get to the absolute alcohol point. No, was we, that a conscious we, choice? Yeah, very, very much was a conscious choice, yeah. <laughs> I think that would be a different market there. Yes. yes, it would. I would buy that at work, not at home. Quiet a place, or this no, is... No, no, this you, is... Oh, you, want, you want it to be noisy. Yes, this, this, this is, is a live environment I experience. I see. Trying to bring Perfect. It adds street cred in the podcast world. Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. Cool. So, uh... First off, lovely to meet you, Chief Scientific Officer for Genome Alberta. That's correct. And if you would like to pronounce your name so that we don't butcher it. Gijs uh, van Rooyen, or as uh, people call me in Canada, Heis. Heis? That works for us. Heis? Yes. <laughs> um, so we wanted to know, what could you tell us broadly about Genome Alberta that, we, that you think listeners broadly should know about? I think uh, listeners should know that, I mean, Genome Alberta is an entity that is supporting and coordinating research projects that all have to do with uh, genetic information. And I think the audience needs to know, if they don't already know, that genetic information is found in bacteria, plants, animals, humans, trees, so it's everywhere. Anything with the capacity for reproduction. Basically, yeah, I think that's a good summary. And I think what we're seeing here today is it's all around food, of course, and food contains DNA. And it does indeed. Does, yeah. and although some people believe it does not. <laughs> Salt uh, might not. Salt might not. But that's that, about where it ends. That, that's right. But, so, uh, but the whole idea is, if, I mean, you can use DNA or the understanding of DNA to uh, manipulate and enhance crops, enhance animals. And I think what we're tasting here today is part of that. So yes. we're we just had the salmon. It yes. was absolutely delicious. Absolutely delicious. And I actually I eat salmon on a regular basis. I could not tell the difference between the salmon I eat at home, which I don't think has been a GMO salmon. No, and I this this is a while ago that I heard this statistic, but I remember hearing that uh, specifically related to aquaculture. If we did not have aquaculture, if we just relied on wild catch, the populations would be depleted within like the week to month timelines yeah. without active farming. And I think, uh, of course, and if we look into the future, where of course the population is is going, is going to continue to grow, and the I guess the stress on our environment, including our natural resources, is going to be tremendous. And so we need to find innovative ways of better production systems that are better for the environment. And uh, genetics or genomics can play a role in that. I think it's fair to say that we're on record as being a pro-GMO podcast. We actually did a whole episode on GMOs. When we first started out our podcast three years ago, we did, you know, kind of talk about not, uh, not even pros and cons, but just perception of GMOs yeah. and why they might be misconstrued yeah. or, or incorrect. And, and maybe if you could get into that a little bit and kind of say, what are the current challenges with the current reaction to when people associate, you know, GMOs as, as they might hear? Yeah, I, I think the way I look at it personally, I mean, I'm not pro-GMO, I'm not against GMO. 
I'm just all for more efficient production systems that basically reduce the pressure on our environment and on our and on our production systems. And and GMOs, they are a legitimate uh, technology that could contribute to that. It's not appropriate in all cases, but in many cases it is. It's one of the tools in the toolbox that you don't want to ignore. And I think, I mean, right now, I mean, there is, of course, there's loads of evidence that from a scientific evidence perspective, there is no risk in consuming GMOs. And that is in part because in Canada, we, get, we have a regulatory system that very carefully regulates any crops with novel traits and animals with novel traits. And so even within Canada, in the regulatory system, they don't look at it GMO versus non-GMO. They're just looking at it, do the crops, do the animals have novel features? Do they produce novel ingredients that could potentially be harmful for the environment or harmful for ourselves as consumers or harmful for animals that may eat those products? That's also how they're being regulated. And so that's a rigorous process. And uh, I think as we've seen now, uh, I mean, GMO products have been in the market since I believe it's the first ones were approved in 1995. And so we're at a 23-year record of uh, basically no adverse effects on humans or on the environment of, uh, of GMO products. To give you an example, I mean, I grew up on a dairy farm. And uh, the uh, so this was 30 years ago. I mean, the amount of milk that a cow produces today, that's not through GMO technologies, but that's simply through breeding technologies and to artificial insemination, which of course is also genetics. I mean, we've seen a doubling or a tripling of the amount of milk production. Is that so? Per cow, without increasing the amount of food or feed that a cow needs to produce that milk. Just through selective breeding? Just through selective breeding. And so that's... That's astounding. It's astounding. And so it's an example of, I mean, how you can take advantage of genetics and genetics diversity to come up with production systems that are much more efficient. Right. I've, I've heard the same when it comes to like fruit and vegetable production, like, you know, apple tree splicing is a fairly well-known, um, is splicing the right term? Grafting. Grafting, sorry, yeah, that's, that's what I meant, yeah. Um, is a pretty common form of growth of apples and it's yeah. a very explicit use of genetic modification in that same sort of like more natural uh, non-manipulative sense. It's just saying, you know, have this tree support this branch and have it grow the apples. Yeah. That it, it so in this case, growing, I mean, right? you take advantage of the genetics of of an apple variety that establishes a a great root structure that is being really efficient in absorbing nutrients, but may not produce very nice apples. So if you graft a, an apple branch that produces nice apples, that can take advantage of that root system that has exactly. been developed, you're perfect. And that's I mean, that's a good example. I mean, that's what we're doing with modern DNA technologies now as well, where we're taking advantage of the, of the, the, the very productive genetic, inf the genetic information that's already in an organism and then augmenting it or bringing in genetic information from related species to make sure that we have the desirable traits in, in a species that has by itself already desirable traits, but as it relates to uh, production efficiency, but maybe not as it relates to taste. Are you able to comment on some of the advancements and research being done for lab-grown meat and the future that that might hold and the viability of it? Well, I think I think it's an exciting technology. Of course, I mean, still using muscle cells uh, in a culture. I mean, that is, of course, it does not involve any uh, genetic modification necessarily. I mean, they're using muscle cells from animals and grow them in culture. Uh, I think the challenge will not be on the biological side, but it will probably more be on the, uh, on the bioengineering side, is to find production systems that are suitable to produce, to grow muscle cells. So more on the scalability? It's on the it? scalability side. Uh, also, I think we should not forget that, I mean, if you wanna, you also need to feed the muscle cells as well, if you wanna grow them into meat-like structures. And right now it's, it's simply cost prohibitive, but I think it's those kinds of innovations in food that I think that we should all be watching with, uh, with a level of excitement because it's going outside of the box, 
and maybe in a petri dish instead. And so even if you're looking at production systems, maybe our meat products will not come from animals, but it will come from a, from a factory where we're, growing, uh, where we're growing these animals. And I think we just need to be open to, uh, to innovation systems that allow us to, uh, to support these technologies. Now, I have a question specifically on uh, genetic diversity. A common theme in our podcast, anyway, is discussion of Svalbard and all things related to Svalbard. And, like, the two, I think, developments that have happened since it opened. Like, in terms of uh, having a seed repository, stuff like that. Uh, do you rely at all on stuff like that? Or is your stuff, or is your work, or the work that uh, Genome Alberta helps with, does that just have more to do with breeding many things and seeing what sticks or no I think I mean the whole seed repository or depository I mean it's it highlights the need to preserve the genetic diversity that we were at risk of losing and I mean if you're looking at the old varieties even the old wheat or even the old uh, corn varieties which grew out of Teosinte which basically they were very uh, they had features that were that allowed them to resist a lot of stresses, but they were not very productive. And so you need to rely on that genetic diversity that you can combine the the positive traits from relatives, so that you can can come up with a new variety that has the positives that combines all the positives and leaves all the negatives behind. So I think the seed vault is is an example, but there's many other uh, sort of seed depositories that are out there. Uh, actually, uh, not ourselves, but our sister organization, Genome Prairie, is, uh, is supporting a project which is called DivSeq, which is diversity, uh, seeking diversity. So that's basically, and the aim is, is to sequence the genomes of wild relatives of our common crop species in an attempt to uncover some of the desirable traits that our current economical varieties have lost and so I think that's quite exciting and I think we need to continue to do that and that's another sort of I think positive side effect of sort of the uh, the even the, the genetic enhancement uh, discussion that we're having we can only have genetic advancement if we have the uh, the, the resources the original resources to fall back on because that's where the genetic diversity is going to come from can you maybe get into some of the potential, you know, like negatives or risks, but what are some things that are valid concerns of GMOs and, and just genetic modification of not necessarily just food, but just of anything in general, I guess. Like, like are, are there risks to consider or is it just really not even an issue? I think, I mean, from a scientific perspective, as far as safety is concerned, I don't think there's any risks at all with the uh, with the regulatory system that we have in place. Uh, but of course, I mean, people, they do have concerns around, uh, I mean, using genetic information from a different organism to enhance another organism. And so that's what people have moral concerns about. And uh, so I think that's just about, uh, so that's a discussion that is, that is not based on any safety concerns, but it's based on, on on, on people's uh, concerns around whether it's moral to, we to should, engage. We, we in should that. interview a philosopher on that front. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and that's, uh, I mean, those people are, those are valid concerns. And I think if we're looking at the scientific community, they have not paid sufficient attention in the past to also to concerns that consumers have that go beyond the simple safety concern. So for scientists just to say, okay, well, you should accept it because it's safe and it's, good for the environment, that is no longer sufficient. I think we need to be sensitive to the, to, to the, to the concerns that individuals have around the use of technologies, uh, privacy concerns as it relates maybe not so much to crops, but as it relates to the use of genetic information in humans. Mm -hmm. Of course, there is tremendous amount of concerns which we need to, uh, which we need to consider very carefully. And so it's this very careful balance. Mm -hmm. But I think what is really important is, is that also for scientists that they are listening to consumers, listening to the general public, rather than telling the general public what they feel they should know.
You know, you bring up consumers and, and the aspect of people making choices to avoid GMOs based on you know ethical ethical feelings or, or choices. Part of that obviously is marketing as far as you know something being GMO free and that's supposed to be a selling point. Is there a future for there to be a level of uh, audit or certification for there to be like certified safe GMO so that people can feel okay about buying GMOs regardless of they should feel okay whether it's marked that way or not just because the regulations yeah. in Canada is that something that could go a long way to help consumers feel I, I think uh, any GMO that's on the that's on the market in Canada is safe and so certified safe GMO all GMOs on the market are certified safe so maybe I mean that's actually a good idea maybe potentially they should just brand it as a certified safe GMO. Yeah. Well, if people are allowed to say GMO free and have that be a selling yeah. point, and you know, it's like why, you know, you can, well, you, I mean, can I, you can throw fat free on a pack of jelly beans and sell that that way. Why not say? But but I safe? think, I mean, what I wish they, but I think the way they need to market is is not so much around whether it's GMO or GMO free. I think they need to market it based on uh, how the use of technologies has impacted the environment to get to that particular product. Certified sustainable might be. Yeah, certified sustainable, and uh, and I think if you're looking at sort of the amount of inputs that are going to be required to get a product to market using GMO technology, it's probably going to be much less as it relates to inputs, as it relates to use of pesticides. It's dramatically reduced if you can take advantage of GMO crops, uh, and if you can take advantage of of the opportunities for GMO to create crops that are better able to resist drought or flooding or crops so they're better able to resist pathogens. Uh, I mean, I'm from the Netherlands and uh, I mean the bulb fields in the Netherlands are, uh, uh, I mean they are not very healthy places because of the amount of, of nematicides that they have to use in the field to keep the tulip bulb safe. Mm -hmm. they, could, they could very well use genomic Technology, so GMO technology to create bulbs that no longer would require nematicides or or pesticides to combat the nematodes if they wanted to would be much better for the environment and in my view much better for the consumers. And so, who doesn't like tulips? And who doesn't like tumor, <laughs> tulips? Exactly. So so I think this is a way. I mean, if you can basically say, well, tulips grown without the use of pesticides. And people should not necessarily worry about whether that's done a GMO variety or not. What they should worry about is is how uh, environmentally friendly technology was used to produce a particular product. I think that's what we want to promote here: is is to 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 tell people and to show people it's not that scary, uh, and that that people should be open to to trying new foods and to take that fair away. Although, that's what we thought. But when we asked the chef, <laughs> the chef said that they were integral in <laughs> tasting very good as well. That's right. But, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, so basically, and then it comes back to, okay, well, I mean, technology can only take you this yeah. far. It's the people behind the technology yeah. that make it or break it. A virtuoso still needs a violin. That's exactly right, yeah. <laughs> Is there a risk on the agricultural side of breeding things to a point where they're so resistant to disease and pests that the diseases and pests are getting more resilient and stronger for those that aren't genetically modified? So those are a bit more at risk? There are. And so so I think even, even when you breed varieties that are resistant to particular diseases, uh, disease resistance, it will develop. And because the, especially smaller pathogens, they, are, they can multiply much faster than plants and they have an ability to evolve much faster. And so it's not, it's not a silver bullet. And so I think, so in addition to, so for instance, I mean crop rotation is part of it. So that basically you do efficient crop rotation so that you do not continue to have uh, selective pressure for a particular pathogen. So that's one way of doing it. And I think what we could also do is, I mean, we could learn for instance, what some of the smaller farmers in Africa are doing, which they're using as a pull-push strategy. So basically, where they are surrounding commercial crops with non-commercial uh, plant varieties that are pulling the pathogens 
that are attracting the pathogens and then having other species interspersed in their commercial crops that are uh, uh, repelling pathogens so that create an odor or a scent that pathogens are uh, moving away from. That's called a pull-push strategy. So in countries, in developing countries where they do not have access to a lot of pesticides or herbicides, that is a way to do that. And I think even in modern agriculture, I think that is a definitely a way that we need to start thinking about maybe incorporating some of that so that we avoid what you just mentioned is the development of, of resistant crops. And we can and we can take advantage of the of the of the disease resistant or 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 environmentally abiotic stress resistant crops for a longer period of time. Mm. So right now if you're looking at the lifespan at maybe five to ten years of a crop before resistance starts to develop. What if you can push it out to 10 to 20 years by using some of these uh, other technologies that, uh, uh, that, for instance, the farmers in Africa are currently using today? That's fantastic. Old and new solutions. Old and new solutions, I think. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is an example where I think uh, here in our developed in our developed economies where we're using a lot of advanced technologies to grow our crops, I think sometimes we need to stop, take a step back, and also to looking and be open to uh, agricultural practices that people have been employing for a long time, and, uh, and also to, to be open to incorporate some of those solutions. Yeah. That, that seems to be a common theme talking to the people here that there's an element of new technology, but a lot of them are just using tried and true methods, yeah. which is, is still technology. Like it was at one point new, it's been like you know developed and perfected up to this point. And if there's not a reason to change or do things differently, then you shouldn't feel pressure to, but still address the challenges as needed and develop new technologies for that, but still be okay sticking to those traditional methods. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, I think there's room for all of that. That was profound. Yeah. I have a lot to think about now. Excellent. <laughs> cool. All right, thank you so much, Heist. Okay, thank you so Appreciate much. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time.